baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Amy Marks Cores, Chris Ranji, KMOX, broadcasting live on the Odyssey app, A-U-D-A-C-Y. And as we mentioned uh, going into break, uh, we uh, got the news late yesterday that uh, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger passed away at the age of 100, made it an entire century, and political analyst Rich Rubino, author of the Great American Political Trivia Challenge, Political Trivia on Steroids, is with us now on the Quiver River Electric guest line. Rich, good afternoon. What's up? Good afternoon. Good to hear from you again. So um, let's let's talk about the legacy of, yep. of Henry Kissinger, because depending on who you talk to, he's either liked or he's not. There are people who call him a war criminal. There mm-hmm. are people yep. who say that he was so consequential and important to our politics. How do you view his tenure? Yeah, here's why he's so controversial. So basically, under his tenure, and he began as national security advisor in the first Nixon administration, then he became actually secretary of state and national security advisor in the second administration, as well as in the administration of Gerald R. Ford, because for him, foreign policy was a zero-sum game. It was not about, you hear today oftentimes, George W. Bush, for example, talks about ending tyranny in our world. Joe Biden talks about democracy and how it has to beat out autocracy. For Kissinger, it was all about what's called realpolitik, meaning essentially that it does not matter what the it does not matter what type of regime it is in other countries. It matters how it affects us. And in his case, it was all a zero sum game. They're either with the communists or they're with the United States. So consequently, places like, for example, Indonesia, Zuharto, he supported a very autocratic regime um, responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of people in part because they were anti-communist. As a matter of fact, on their way to China, when Ford and Kissinger were on their way there, um, they met with Suharto, and Suharto basically hinted that he was going to try to invade East Timor, and the Ford administration did not, did, not kind of, did not try to talk him down from that and say, you really should do that, shouldn't do that. They said, we kind of understand why you're doing this. And the next day, um, Suharto did invade Indonesia. The other one was in Chile, for example, when the United States supported a coup in, under the Nixon administration against the leftist Delende regime and put in um, Pinochet, who was very much an autocrat. Now, that being said, the other side of that equation is when it comes to the issue of China, because it would, because he does not care necessarily about, because human rights is very much secondary or tertiary, he was willing to send out back channels to our arch adversary, the Chinese, to eventually have a diplomatic mission there where President Nixon actually met with, President, with, met with Mao. This basically established the U.S.-China relations, and in 1979, President Jimmy Carter um, landed up actually recognizing China and they normalized relations. So it works kind of both ways. That's why from certainly many diplomats, part of the foreign policy establishment, he's a tribune or he's a hero. But for many human rights activists and many on the left, he's very much a villain. Yeah, it, it does seem like in his policy with his realpolitik, he was able to accept 
because of that mindset, what would be to a lot of people an unpalatable amount of tragedy uh, in other countries? Can you let's let's start with one of the biggest his role in what happened, the carpet bombing, the scenes we see in Cambodia? Yes, absolutely. And this so basically. Go back a little time in history when he was in 1968, there was actually President Johnson had the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese. They were about to have peace talks, which would have inarguably benefited Hubert Humphrey, the Democratic president nominee. And Kissinger was actually working for the Hubert Humphrey administration, for the Johnson Humphrey administration. But he was also advising the Nixon administration kind of underhandedly and told them that they should tell the South Vietnamese not to show up for their um not to show up for the meeting, essentially, it ha- essentially the South Vietnamese did not did not show up for the meetings, and by the Nixon by the Nixon administration, um, the Nixon administration took about four years to actually end the Vietnam War. Some believe it could have ended earlier. Now that being said, under the Nixon administration in um, in Cambodia, they one way they tried to end it was to try to was to try to expand the war into Cambodia and to try to where the supply lines were coming to the were coming to the North Vietnamese, and that was in many respects unconstitutional. Because while there was a declar- while there was not a declaration war, there was an authorization war to go into Vietnam. The Nixon administration actually expanded it, and there are probably over 100,000 people who died there. We are visiting with Rich Rubino, who is a political analyst. Uh, we talk to him quite a bit when when something yes. big happens, especially. And Rich, we appreciate you being with us again. This is so b- because he's a person that is uh, uh, wholly unpopular with a lot of people, or was unpopular with a lot of people if we if we wait 30 years and look back on him how do you think history will view him and it's still gonna it's always gonna be bifurcated it's 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 in very respects it's kind of similar i guess to the presidency of lyndon johnson if you look you look at that 100 years from now and it's gonna you're never going to be able to have a you're not going to be able to have a complete view of it because on the one hand there was a tragedy of Vietnam a hundred hundreds of thousands of people died because of the because of the persecution of the Vietnam War on the other side you had civil rights and Medicare and the war in poverty so it's always going to be bifurcated and in terms of in terms of Henry Kissinger you're always on the one hand you're going to look at China you're going to look at detente you're going to look at um, the strategic arms limitation treaty and that's something that very much progressed in terms of what were the big picture items between the United States and the Soviet Union and China. But then you look at other countries and countries that many would view as kind of subservient to that Cold War access, and you look at what his policy did to certainly to Chile, to Argentina, to, Indo, to, to East Timor. And in that respect, he appears like it appears that he supported many atrocities. And that's why you're always going to have people on the left. You're going to have um, people on the left are going to say this guy's an absolute war criminal. He should have been tried to the Hague. And then people who are more part, more part of the foreign policy establishment, both the center right and the center left, who say that he's the quintessential diplomat and that he preserved the order in the Cold War, which eventually led to the victory in the Cold War dis- and the uh, Russians um, and, and, the, and the Soviet Union dissipating in 1991. But it's never going to be a complete legacy. And just like anything else in the in life, it's about critical thinking. You have to kind of, in one hand, you have to read what the left says. You have to read what the right says. And then you have to kind of be able to um, organize it. And um, obviously, just like anything else, it's um, very nuanced. But he's somebody who has a lot of hatred on the one side. And on the other side, a lot of people, at least not necessarily the love for him, but some respect for him. Um, I think that's more what the legacy is going to be. 
you know, right right now especially, it's easy to take for granted this idea of a mediator between world powers or perhaps geopolitical adversaries. We're seeing it on multiple fronts. However, this idea known in Kissinger's time as shuttle diplomacy was yep. really introduced on a grand scale by him, this shuttle diplomacy. Had that idea of a mediator between uh, between adversaries or opponents, had that really not been implemented in any type of global negotiation before that time? No, it was definitely implemented. I think you go back to George Marshall, for example, under the Truman administration. He tried that on a lesser scale. Um, in Kissinger's case, first of all, if you go back to the in terms of relations with China, he was actually doing it very surreptitiously. And interestingly, Senator Mike Mansfield, who was the majority leader, the longest serving majority leader from Montana, actually asked the Nixon administration if he could actually, it wasn't, it wasn't Kissinger's idea. He said, he asked them if he, could make it, if he could make his own mission to China to try to ease relations. And the Nixon administration actually said, no, we do not want you to do that. But Kissinger was gradually doing this while this was going on. And um, so he was, and he, and he did this also in the Middle East. He did this in a lot of other parts of the country. He certainly did this in Iran, for example. Um, he was going around, by, by Iran, I mean, he was doing everything he could to try to, um, he was doing everything he could to try to prop up the Shah of Iran, who was very much a U.S. ally, but also uh, an adversary of human rights. But that is something, and you certainly hear this, and the reason it's so interesting is in 1988, for example, there was a Democratic presidential debate, and they were talking about what should happen in the Middle East. And one of the and some of the candidates were actually saying, well, what we need to do is what the Nixon administration did, shut all diplomacy. We need to send someone to go over between, between Gaza and the West Bank and in Israel. Well, that actually, that's a term that kind of, I think, began in his in his administration, but certainly if you go back, it was not he was not the first person that did it, but he was certainly the person who I think popularized it. I think when you when you when you look up the term 100 years from now, people will immediately, if they remember anything about him, that is something that will certainly be remembered about him. One thing that seems to be widely, um, I guess, accepted about him is that on a uh, a personal level, he seems to have operated in a self-preservation kind of uh, yeah. way where he was really good at networking, he was really good at just keeping his position and therefore changed his position on a lot of different things just to keep his job. Is that accurate? That is the Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. I think that that is categorically accurate. And there are some people in politics that are like this. They're ideologues. An ideologue is someone that gets into politics because they have a certain group, certain set of ideas, and they're not going to deviate from them. Then there are people like Henry Kissinger who are more accommodationists. And he was somebody, people forget, he actually served in the Johnson administration, the Democratic administration, which preceded President Nixon. And then he, he was very much also advising Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller was a very liberal Republican who was running for the Republican presidential nomination in 1968 against Richard Nixon. Then Richard Nixon becomes president. He does all he possibly can to cultivate relations within the Nixon administration. Then he becomes national security advisor in the Nixon administration. He stays on um, when Gerald Ford becomes in. So he's somebody who's very much 
he's not in that respect. He's not a, he's not necessarily an ideologue, but he's somebody who's very much a survivalist. And he's also somebody who who certainly advised Democratic and Republican administrations. And he actually came to Camp David at one point and met with Gerald Ford, uh, the person who defeated Gerald Ford in 1976. He actually met with President Carter, gave advice to President Carter. And I guess maybe that's perhaps why he did not, because he was not an ideologue in that sense, maybe that is perhaps why he was not necessarily an ideologue in terms of dealing with foreign regimes, in terms of saying, you have to be democracy, you have to be democracy. He was someone who would just say, okay, what's in our, be- what's in our-, what's in our best interest? And you can essentially do, you know, you can t- say to someone like the Shah of Iran, and said essentially, you can do whatever you want, you can implement any policy you want, but we just want to know, how this is going to affect our country economically and how this is going to affect the geopolitical rivalry between the United States, China, and um, Russia. But he didn't necessarily have that ideological uh, vantage point for um, for issues, and certainly not for himself. He was someone who could go from administration to administration, despite the fact from a very liberal administration like the Johnson administration to a more moderate administration like President Nixon and President Ford. Well, you mentioned detente and, and that policy that Kissinger uh, helped mastermind pursue under uh, under uh, President Nixon. And then you have Ronald Reagan, who, you know, after Carter really yep. has an anti anti detente uh, policy and platform. What was the evolution of the American public's perception or opinion of detente? That's a great question. It was actually becoming very much supportive in the establishment. The people on the left were supporting it, supportive of it, even though they did not like the Nixon administration's policy in Vietnam. But the detente actually continued, and, and that there was the right that was mostly opposed to it, actually continued under the Ford administration. It basically, Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson wanted a more confrontational approach with the Soviet Union. Nixon and Kissinger come in with detente. Ford follows up on that. And it's really an inflection point, I think, in the Republican Party it was in 1975 when Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a Soviet dissident, wrote the Gulag Archipelago, was in the United States. And the thought process was he should meet with President Ford. And there were there was overtures that he should meet with President Ford. And Henry Kissinger advised President Ford not to meet with him because if you do this, if you meet with Solzhenitsyn, that's going to tear apart the Todd because you're going to defend Leonard Brezhnev, you're going to defend the Soviet Union. And Ford took his advice and did not meet with them. His official response was, well, I don't usually meet with, um, indi- with, with individuals, although he had met with Pele, the soccer player, for example. So you talk about Ronald Reagan. This is, 19, no, this is 76, 75, not 1980. Ronald Reagan, a former governor of California who Ford had actually offered the Secretary of Commerce an ambassador to Britain to try to get him out of his hair, I guess, but he didn't take it. He, he was very much offended by this, wrote a column about this and saying that why we should meet with Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsyn to hear when you take on the Soviet Union, not work with the Soviet Union. That was precipitated his presidential challenge to, to Gerald Ford in 1976. So Ronald Reagan ran against Gerald Ford, almost beat Gerald Ford, won the North Carolina primary, won a bunch of primaries, and eventually Jimmy Carter won the presidency in 1976. Had Ronald Reagan not challenged Gerald Ford, I think it's a very good chance that the Republican Party would have been united and conservatives would have essentially stayed on the reservation and respectively voted for Gerald Ford. That was really the divide, and that was the inflection point. Then Reagan, of course, comes in the presidency after Jimmy Carter in 1980 and has that very much a confrontational approach and very much against detente. But at the end of his administration, he started negotiating with Gorbachev, and then he offended the conservative uh, right wing when he was negotiating a treaty with the Soviet Union. The right wing of the Republican Party um, was very, was, became, became became very adversarial to him to the point that Newt, when when he was going to um, 
When he was going to Reykjavik, Ronald Reagan, to meet with Mikhail Gorbachev, a young congressman from Georgia named Newt Gingrich compared that to, went to, um, to, Neville, Cham- to Neville Chamberlain meeting with Adolf Hitler in, back in 1939. Um, folks like Jerry Falwell, Jesse Helms were absolutely comp- rapidly said that Ronald Reagan had basically abandoned. He'd gone back to detente. But that 1975 meeting or non-meeting with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I think, was very much an inflection point and may have been the reason why Gerald Ford lost the presidency that year. Rich Rubino, you know everything. Thank you for talking with us again. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to do it. Glad to do it anytime. Thank you so much. Thank Rich you. Rubino joining us here on KMOX, author of the Great American Political Trivia Challenge. Pick up that book. There's a lot of good stuff in it. It's Chris and Amy on KMOX. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.